0: Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meteor, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just hepha, and a just hin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments, and do them. I am the Lord. In this law, God begins by declaring that he shall do no unrighteousness in judgment or justice. The word judgment here is our modern word, justice. Then it goes on to specify the areas in which God very strictly requires justice. The words are somewhat unfamiliar to us or have changed their meaning, so it is important to analyze this passage with respect to some of the key words. First of all, meat yard. The term meat yard is one that designates measures of length or surface. We would say the yard foot, inch, mile, and similar measures constitute meteor. The second word here is weight. Weight for us has reference to pounds and tons, but in scripture weight has an entirely different connotation. It does refer to what we mean by weight that in a very limited area. Weight has reference to talents and shekels and similar weights, which are weights of money, that is, of gold and silver. So that when the scripture speaks of weight, it is talking about what we mean by money, or should mean by money, because the reference is specifically to gold and silver the third term is measure measure means here measures of capacity both liquid and dry measures a little later it specifies some of these measures EPA and hin. balances is what we mean by the word weight or weights, scales in other words is the reference in balance this passage therefore is a very important one it refers to certain things which are basic to all commerce everyday life and the material life of society the fact that weights meant money was Known from the very beginning. There has never been any illusion about this matter. The Bible speaks of money as a weight. For example, in 1 Chronicles 21:25, we read, David gave to Arnon for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. We're not sure precisely... How much a gold shekel was in weight in terms of our standards today, but it was almost certainly a half ounce. At this point, it is interesting to note how much preaching today is irrelevant. It has become too spiritual. It has forgotten the realities of our everyday life. Any investigation in any good Bible dictionary will tell you that weight means money. For example, one of the finest of the Bible dictionaries is Fairburn's Bible Encyclopedia. There is a long article, several pages long, by Lonar on weight, in which he gives a very specific and precise definition of the weight of the Bible, and yet Bonar wrote one of the best-known commentaries on politics, which is still in print, after a hundred years, and in the course of his treatment of this law, he reads his spiritual meaning into it, and never once refers to the material significance of weights and measures, meat yard, or balance. And this illustrates the common fallacy. The average preacher feels that he has to be talking about something spiritual. But the Bible, from beginning to end, relates not only to things spiritual, but things material, to the whole of reality, every side of it, to heaven and to earth, to economics and to politics, to the family and the school, to the earth to everything around us. At this point, when we turn to the Talmud, which is sometimes very much damned among Christians, we find that it speaks more clearly. The Talmud is often very faulty in its commentary. But at this point, in commenting on this passage in Leviticus, his comment is very interesting. and I quote, Why did the divine law mention the exodus from Egypt in connection with interest, fringes, and waste? The holy one, blessed be he, declared it is I who distinguished in Egypt between the firstborn and one who is not the firstborn. Even so it is I who will exact vengeance from him who ascribes his money to a Gentile and lends it an Israelite on interest, or who seeks his weight in salt, or who attaches it to his garment thread dyed with vegetable blue and maintains that it is the real blue. In other words, what the Talmud says is that God in this passage says, I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. If you obey my law, then you are indeed one of my elect. But if you disregard this law, then you demonstrate that you are reprobate. A Hebrew Christian, C.D. Ginsburg, who, towards the end of the last century, became one of the great Old Testament commentators in England, has commented on the significance of this law in Israel and its enforcement from the days of Nehemiah to the time of our Lord. And his passage on this commandment is very interesting. I quote, it will be seen that the lawgiver uses here exactly the same phrase with regard to meeting out right measures which he used in connection with the administration of justice in the verse 15. In other words, anyone who is dishonest in money or in measures of any kind is like a corrupt judge. Continue. He therefore who declares that a false measure is a legal measure is according to this law as much a corrupt judge and defrauds the people by false judgment as he who in the court of justice Willfully passes a long text, owing to the fact that men who would otherwise disdain the idea of imposition often discard their scruples in the matter of weights and measures. The Bible frequently brands these dealings as wicked and an abomination in the Lord, whilst it designates the right measure as coming from God Himself. As witness Deuteronomy 25:13 and 15. Ezekiel 45, 10 and 12, Hosea 12, 8, Amos 8, 5, Micah 6, 10 and 11, Proverbs 11, 1, Proverbs 16, 11, Proverbs 20, verses 10 and 23. According to the authorities during the second temple, he who gives false weight or measure, like the corrupt judge, is guilty of the following five things. First, defiles the land. Second, profanes the name of God. Third, causes the Shikina, that is the presence of God, to be promised. Fourth, makes Israel perish by the sword. And fifth, to go into captivity. Hence, they declare that the sin of the illegal weights and measures is greater than that of incest and is equivalent to the sin of denying that God redeemed Israel out of They appointed public overseers to inspect the weights and measures all over the country. They prohibited weights to be made of iron, lead, or other metal liable to become lighter by wear or rust, and ordered them to be made of polished rock or of glass and the like, and enacted the severest punishment for fraud. I think is revealing the first pure food and drug laws the first inspection of scales the first inspection of money to make sure it was gold and silver and of standard weight came under the Mosaic Law this law therefore has very important implications you might add before we deal with these implications, the many verses that Ginsburg cited in this quote which I just read are not all the verses that the Bible has on the matter of just weights and measures. Is it not a sin, therefore, when it is so often spoken of in Scripture and made so important by God that Nothing is said by the church about it today, that men can preach a lifetime and never speak about this law. Now, as we turn to the analysis of this law, let us once again look at the text of Leviticus 19, verses 35 through 37. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meter, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just heap, and a just pin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am. Now, first of all, this law makes clear that the old Latin and the modern laissez-faire principle, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, is not biblical. Dishonest merchandising is, according to scripture, a matter for the court. As serious, as dishonest judges and courts. On the other hand, the liberal principle of today, let the seller beware, is not biblical meaning. The uh, the laissez-faire promoted irresponsibility by the seller, and liberalism today promotes irresponsibility by the buyer. The state is, according to Scripture, the ministry of justice. God has ordained, according to Scripture, a ministry of grace. Church and the Ministry of Justice, the state, and the state, therefore, as the Ministry of Justice, has the duty to maintain justice in the marketplace, but it cannot confuse justice, of course, with charity. Now, it is true that the state, as the policeman, can be corrupt. When I first started college, I worked for a time in a big market, on-market Street in San Francisco. It was during the Depression. And one of the things that I noticed very quickly was that many places, many of the concessions in this huge market, at that time the world's largest market, had this on a scale. And I learned that there were major markets, up and down market Street that had dishonest scale. All they had to do was to bribe the inspector, and they got by with it, and the amount of money they made was considerable. This does not mean that we should, therefore, do away with such inspection. We do not abolish the court, because most of our judges today are not godly men. The state will be corrupt, and the officials will be corrupt when the society is corrupt. That he is not the state, but the religious state of man and of society. You cannot have a good state if you do not have godly people. And that he is, first of all, a regeneration of men. But lost weights and measures are, as God declares, unrighteousness in judgment or justice, and therefore they are a matter of just jurisdiction for faith. Now we saw that meteor means measures of length or of yards, of course, the inch and the mile. Justice requires maintaining strict standards in these matters and penalizing fraud. Frauds in land transactions, in goods, in materials, in any kind of measure. Third, we saw that the biblical word translated as weight always means Weights of gold and silver, or money, so that this is a prohibition against fraud in money. It requires that money be by weight, weight of gold and silver. When God issued a bill of indictment against Israel in the first chapter of, against Jerusalem, in the first chapter of Isaiah, he declared, thy silver is become gross. In other words, instead of your silver money, you now have Johnson clothes. Counterfeit money, or paper money, without any backing. It is significant that in terms of this law, because our forefathers in this country were believers, American coinage was by weight. Our gold coinage was in terms of the ounce. The double eagle is an ounce, 900 times gold. The eagle, half an ounce, the, uh, the $5 gold piece, a quarter of an ounce, and so on. In other words, by weight. As a matter of fact, not only was our silver coinage by weight, with would have specified the number of grains of silver, but for a time, over a century ago, our trade dollar actually carried on it, since it was used overseas, the very number of grains in the coin. Fractional reserve banking, therefore, and paper money without backing or partial backing is fraudulent money in a violation of this law. It is counterfeit. All ministers who do not condemn false weights and measures share in the guilt of silence. They are like corrupt judges. They corrupt God's word. Inflation is fraud because it is the manipulation of money, the printing of paper money by the government as a means of robbing the people. Solomon condemns this kind of thing repeatedly. Solomon, incidentally, was a strong, hard money man. Proverbs 20.10 reads, Divers wait Remember, means money. And divers measures, both of them are alike abomination to the Lord. In other words, money then was minted not in a circle as coins, but as standard weights. The shekel was a weight. And if the weight was adulterated or trimmed, this was an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs twenty twenty three. 23. Divers' weights are an abomination unto the Lord, and a false balance is not good. Notice here, where it speaks both of weight, that is money, and balances, which is what we mean by weight, it makes clear that the worst of the two is doctored money. It is described as an abomination unto the Lord, but bad scales, false balances. Not good. Not as serious. It is an offense against God. But the other is an abomination because it destroys and it robs a people. It is theft of everyone through whose hands the money passes this was not only a matter of legislation in the law but through the prophets Ezekiel in the last days of Jerusalem which perished because of a bill of indictment by God for they had turned their silver into dross withdrawn their silver weights and issued cloth weights gave as the Requirement by God when they reestablished Jerusalem after the captivity. The exact ratio of the shekels, the lesser and the greater weight, as well as every other kind of measure. You'll find this in Ezekiel 45 verses 9 through 12. God very specifically lays down the law and says, This is the relationship so that there can be no tampering with the shekel or with the liquid measure, the dry measure, or the measure of length or surface. It was this important in the sight of God. And this fearful of sin to tamper with these things. In fact, God declares to Ezekiel that lack of justice here is violence and spoil. And exaction. The next, with respect to measures of capacity, that is liquid and dry measures, Isaiah in the Bill of Indictment declares that one of the reasons why God will send them into judgment and captivity is because your wine is mixed with water. Now, God felt this was. When you destroy standards, you destroy everything that makes life livable. It destroys the relationship between man and man. When men tamper with the word of God, they are destroying the standard, and all life is out of kilter in the spiritual realm. And when men destroy money, they destroy all economics. When they destroy measures of capacity... They again destroy communication. They tamper with life itself. Now, of course, the way of tampering, as Isaiah made clear, is not merely by changing the size of a quart bottle. Of course, we have that nowadays. You get all kinds of Big packages today, you buy soap in a super big package and you don't get as many ounces of soap very often as you did in a smaller package. And there are all kinds of ways today of giving you more, supposedly, less. ice cream is made in such a way that air is blown into it in the process of manufacturing. ...so that when you buy a quart of ice cream, you're not buying a quart. It comes in a quart container, but it is not a quart. That is a violation of the law. Watered wine. Air-filled ice cream. Watered fruit. I know as a boy that many, many... ...supposed Christians, when I was a boy on the farm who were in church every Sunday morning and evening and were very self-righteous about how good they were as Christians, nonetheless, would water their fruit just before picking. If they could get away with it, and inspectors did not get by. Why? They could add tons to their harvest and make a lot of money. Of course, it cut the flavors so your fruit was not as sweet. They made money thereby. It was quite a common trick before. Now it is not as commonly practiced because they have ways of detecting it. For ranchers to take their cattle off water, to fence them off of the water, and then throw a lot of salted hay to them to make sure they were good and hungry. So, when they finished eating the hay and they were ready to turn them loose on water, they tanked up on water and got bloated with it, and, of course, weighed heavily when they were taken immediately to be sold. Now, of course, the buyers have their own dishonest scale, as it were. The scales are inspected by the state, but they will take the cattle to market in Closed trucks, so that the water runs off the cattle. They sweat them so in a closed truck without circulation, and they lose weight heavily. And they rob the rancher that way, when it's stuff. All of these are violations of the commandment of just measures. Then, fifth, just balances, what we would today call just weights or scales. And Amos declares in Amos 8 verses 4 through 8 that the poor are especially victimized this way and that they are at least able to protect themselves. Then finally, the consequences of this law, of the violation of this law, are apparent in the land itself, scripture declares. Amos, for example, declares that judgment shall sweep over such a land as the Nile floods Egypt. God requires
1: obedience.
0: He declares that because he has saved his people, therefore shall he observe all my statutes and all my judgments that do them. I am the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 to 15, Moses re-emphasized this law of God, declaring, Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers weights of great and of small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures of great and of small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and a just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In other words, God emphatically declares that he will lengthen the life of a people and a nation that obey his law here. And he will cut short the life of a people that does not obey his law here with regards to weight and measures, with regards to money and every other kind of measure. This then is an important fact. If God declares he will shorten our lives and the life of a nation for violation of this law, is it not a sin not to declare this to the people of God? It was once declared commonly. There's a great deal, for example, in Luther, about this. And Luther spoke out very strongly. Incidentally, there's a very strong passage in his commentary on Romans. The great series of lectures with which the Reformation began on the sin of inflation and doctored money, a fraudulent quining. And in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Luther says, I quote, a just weight and just measure shall be preserved in the community so that a poor person and one's neighbor are not this also has general validity for all exchanges of all contracts. Does the seller give just and equitable wares for the money of the buyer? Here breeds no unbelievable injustices and tricks in changing, cheapening, imitating, and adulterating merchandise.
1: Therefore,
0: it is no small part of the concern of government to have an eye here the common good, unquote. Note what Luther said. No small part of the concern of judgment, that is, of the ministry of justice. Therefore, Luther felt it was no small part of the ministry of the word to declare the word in the message. In other words, to be relevant to everyday life. The old saying certainly holds good today. That too many preachers are so spiritually minded that they are of no earthly good. The modern legal tradition in relationship to this law finally should be First of all, the older liberalism and the present-day conservatism has been strongly laissez-faire. The thesis of laissez-faire is that the self-interest of everybody adds up to the general good. In other words, let everybody go their own selfish way with no interference from the state and the general self-interest of all adds up to the public good. Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. As a result, it has had no concern for the state enforcement of this law. This law was a part of our heritage. It was a part of America up to approximately the civil war. Since the Civil War until the Wilsonian era, the rule of the individual is self-interest prevailed. On the other hand, the new liberalism and socialism affirm the rule of the state. They maintain that the self-interest of the state leads to the greatest good of all, because, supposedly, the state has the welfare of all people at heart. And, of course, we have seen that this is not true. The era from the Civil War to World War I produced the robber barons and a great many injustices. What good there was in it was a hangover from our Christian heritage. And the period from World War I to the present has seen a steady drift into a tyrannous state. Mm-hmm. The first alternative, laissez-faire, offers no protection to the individual from the sin and rapacity of man. The second offers no protection from the sin and rapacity of the state. Our protection. It must be the biblical one. The biblical rule is not the law, of, is not the rule of the individual nor the rule of the state, but the rule of God and his law. God's self-interest is alone the true foundation of law and order. We cannot trust to the self-interest of man or the state man is a sinner and the state reflects the sin of man. But God's self-interest is alone the true foundation of law and order. God is all holy, righteous, and just. Does most wisely decree and govern all things. Only as men are redeemed, regenerated by the blood of Jesus Christ only as they submit by grace or by the compulsion of a Christian order to God's law can there be justice. If God's law order is not respected, then neither man's self-interest nor the state's self-interest can preserve the social order. Except the Lord builds. They labor in vain that building. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the plain speaking of Thy Word. We thank Thee that Thy Word is a light and a lamp unto our feet. And we thank Thee that it is so filled with glorious O Lord, our God, indeed, we as a nation have sinned against thy word. We have forsaken thy law, and we have adopted false weights and measures in things material and things spiritual. We thank thee, our Father, that thy word speaks to us, and by thy grace we have come to thee. Grant, our Father, that we move in terms of true standards, Thy word in every realm, and that our life be prolonged and permanent, unto the end that we may rebuild, and that Thy law word may again prevail in the councils of men and nations, of churches and schools. O Lord our God, bless and prosper in his
1: In Jesus' name, Amen.
0: land is defiled. Second, it profanes the name of God. Third, it causes the Shekinah or the presence of God, the glory of God, to depart. Fourth, it makes Israel perish by the sword. And fifth, to go into captivity. This is from the various uh, statements throughout the law concerning these violations.
1: Yes? Brought up how to Yes, and if cover it.
0: Yes. Not zoning and that type of thing, but a requirement of uh honest dealing by a contractor. Yes, definitely.
1: Any other questions? Yes.
0: You can best translate vanity into our modern terminology. Define Arminianism. First of all, Arminianism, Arminianism, which is spelled A R M I N I A N I S -S N, is really the Protestant form of Thomism or Scholasticism. It is the basic philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, adapted and cheapened to a great degree, and made into a Protestant doctrine. As a result, your Arminians are really, theologically, a part of the Roman tradition. Arminianism, except for its doctrine of the Church, is a denatured version of Thomism. In fact, Thomism is far closer to the faith. That is Arminianism. Now, Arminianism basically denies the sovereignty of God. It declares that it is not the sovereign act of God which saves man, but man's choice. Man chooses God. Man's faith saves him. In this respect, the Reformation phrase justification by faith is one I prefer not to use because it has been destroyed, in a sense, by the Arminians. They say, yes, we believe in the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, our faith saves us. What Luther meant by that is justification by God who through his gift of faith works a miracle of a changed life in our hearts. As a result, we should more properly, as against the Arminians, use the expression justification by God, or by the grace of God. Because they inescapably define faith as man's choice, not the gift of God. Now, there are degrees of Arminianism, but Arminianism, in its conclusion, as well as in its beginning, is humanism. A few years ago, when I spoke at Riverside, about five years ago, there was one extremely fundamentalistic minister present who protested against what I had to say because it had as its foundation, he said, the damnable doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, for him, the essence of the matter was that man, by his faith, chooses God. And all that Jesus did was to open up the possibility of salvation and then man can choose to accept what God does. In other words, implicit here is the omnipotence of man as against the omnipotence of God. Arminianism is therefore humanism. It's interesting you ask this question because although I did not use the word Arminianism, my newsletter for December, which is going out this week on Thursday, and we're going to have the announcement, Music. we'll get them Wednesday to the women's meeting, uh, uh, of the Christmas festival, as well as Gary's article on wage and price controls in that mailing. But in this... Newsletter, I deal with the so called passion for souls. The passion for souls is a humanistic thing. And you find when you talk to these men who have this passion for souls that they have no passion for the Word of God. And all these revivalists want a, the lowest common denominator kind of theology. I talked with one man who's one of the most prominent men on the team of one very famous evangelist, as famous as any day, without mentioning any names, (laughs) who followed a very loose view of Genesis 1, and he was ready to read all the geological ages into Genesis 1, and a kind of progressive evolution, and still say he believed in the Bible. And he welcomed Bernard Ram's book, Harmony of Science and Scripture, and those of you who've read it know what a radical compromising book it is. And I said, how can you accept something that is so plainly uh, guilty of doing violence to Scripture? And his answer was, But this position doesn't lead into a conflict with people about science and the Bible. In other words, compromise is at the heart of Arminianism. It sacrifices the Word of God. What is important, he told me in all these evangelists, if you start bringing down Scripture every time, when you find that they're weak on Scripture, well, we can't bother with the fine points of doctrine. And they, finally their answer to me, every time I've tangled as one of these characters has been, and I mentioned this in the newsletters, well, what you lack is a passion for souls. In other words, they have no passion for the word of God and for the glory of God. Souls are important, and you can do violence to the word of God in the name of man. Now, this is humanism. And today, it's humanism that's captured the church. This is why some of them are so uh, ready to go along with a civil rights revolution, or to talk about love continually because of this basic humanism. You've got to love everybody. Why? Why? Doesn't the psalmist say, "Do I not hate them that hate me?" Yea, I hate them with a perfect faith. The enemies of God, we are the hate. But the humanist cannot do this. He cannot stand division between men. Now, in this independent republic, one of the points I made was that every theology has to have a doctrine of an undivided Godhead. There can be no division in the Godhead. If you have a division in the Godhead, your religion collapses. Therefore, of course, the early church had to battle, as I point out in the Foundations of Social Order, to maintain the unity and the equality of the three persons of the Godhead. Now, if you're a humanist, then you worship man. What do you have to have to be logical philosophically in terms of your faith? unity of your Godhead, the unity of man. You cannot tolerate anything that divides man from man. But our Lord said, I came to bring a sword to divide households in terms of myself. Not in terms of your petty quarrels, but in terms of myself. In terms of the fundamental truth of God the regenerate versus the unregenerate. But humanism has to have a united mankind. Because it has to have a unity of the gospel. Therefore the humanist will do everything to bring men together. In my current newsletter I quote one theologian who says that we must have peace at any price. So he asks Americans to surrender at every point to
1: the civil rights and demands in England. Yes. <laughs> yes. The
0: opahists, the opahists, and so on. Of course, are increasingly influential. Your most popular books, your best-selling books today, are not those on the best list. They're occultist books. The money in occultist books today is phenomenal. And, of course, occultists and astrologers like Gene Dixon have become extremely popular, and they are syndicated writers here in Los Angeles and others. They make tremendous money. Now, according to these people, the age of Aquarius is the age we are going to go into, and it's an age in which the elite masters are going to rule the world for the welfare of mankind, and there will be peace and prosperity and plenty, and everything under the hidden masters. Yes.
1: very, good are thoughts you know, the and the form. And I have yeah. to add that. I, I, I don't know why I say this. But it seems to be really that it is that we are preaching the gospel. They do Laying on the foundation of the study
0: that they had in the law on there. And this is the truth that they are not using the Bible in all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, it is pietism. And it is staying with the ABC. Now, you cannot learn to read unless you learn your ABCs. As a Christian, you cannot begin to understand unless you are saved. Those are the ABCs. But you don't spend all your time once you learn the ABCs going over the alphabet, do you? You proceed from there to the mature of things, the whole counsel of God. But... Today, the Reformed churches, like the fundamentalists, are, well, all the churches just concentrate on the ABCs. I know some fundamentalistic churches where they actually say the only thing that should be preached from the pulpit is the message of salvation. I know one elder in a fundamentalistic church who got after the pastor because he wasn't preaching he must be born again every Sunday. Now, in effect, a lot of the Reformed churches are doing the same thing. They're concentrating on a few doctrines with respect to salvation. They go a little bit beyond John 3.16. Then they don't go out into the whole council of God as it relates to everyday life. And so the church becomes irrelevant, and it becomes a congregation of babes in Christ. Now, babes are not... Well, we believe in total depravity as Christians. And we believe that children need discipline or they get out of hand. And maturity, the ability to govern oneself, is something that comes with growth and Christian maturity. St. Paul condemned those Christians who are still babes in Christ, who are still with the elementary things, with milk rather than strong meat. And the word he used on one occasion for babes in the Greek is idiote, which is our English word, idiot. You're still idiots in Christ. You're not growing. Now, this may be a harsh judgment, but the church today is full of idiots. They don't grow. How can they grow? If they are given nothing but Milk and a tablet. This is why there must be a revival of the preaching of the whole
1: Word of God. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. This is true, and it's because that, uh, Well, you find with some, it is really a sin to refer to God, because then you're an Old Testament believer rather than a New Testament believer. With others, when you say God, it refers only to God the Father, not God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, which is heretical. The word God refers to the Trinity, not just God the Father, or not just Jesus Christ. The word God refers to the Trinity. If you're talking about the Father, then you must take God the Father. So, this is heretical. But the church today, see, has forsaken sound doctrine, by and large, or else withdrawn into a narrow, pietistic mold. Yes. definition of the world's word fundamentalism fundamentalism as a term began in the 1890s when a series of essays were published by a variety of writers entitled the fundamentals at that time those fundamentals were written by men who were among them uh warfield and others who were great reformed came to be, especially after World War I, exclusively used by the Arminians, who felt that no one was a fundamentalist unless they were Arminian in theology, so that the term fundamentalism has come to refer to the Arminians rather than to, say, uh, the Reformed churches or the Lutheran churches or the Anglican churches that, and theologies that are thoroughly biblical.
1: Yes? Uh, so, he's uh, members of the New Testament Church.
0: Yes, he is a member of the Church of Christ, one branch of it, which calls itself a New Testament church and, in effect, denies the, well, openly denies the validity of the Old Testament and of the law. As a matter of fact, many of them, and I believe that Harvest may be among them, I know that many of his associates are, are extremely dispensationalists, so that most of the New Testament. Is not valid for them either. It belongs to the kingdom age, uh, when, uh, the millennial kingdom is established by Christ among the
1: Jews. That they I'm believe. About, uh, uh, yes.
0: Well, uh, for him, the Old Testament is valueless and I would be a heretic in his sight for preaching, as I have today. Yes. 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 Outwardly, we go through the act of choice, and our choice is real. Our choice is a secondary cause or a secondary cause. In other words, the fact that God is the first cause does not remove the reality of second causes, as the Westminster Confession of David declares. Rather, it establishes the validity of second cause. Thus, my choice ultimately reflects God's decree and decision from all eternity. But what I do is still real for me. I don't feel any compulsion. I am free to do that which it is my nature to do. So, I am free as I act. But the ultimate cause of all things is God who made all things. Known unto God are all his works of the foundation of the world. Now you see, scientific determinism is different from predestination. Scientific determinism says everything has been determined by the fortuitous concourse of atoms. Therefore, nothing we do has any significance. But predestination says our choice is real. Our will has validity precisely because God created all things. So there's a world of difference between the two. Well we're running way over time. I'm gonna take one or two more questions. Oh, well that's not that's just a minute. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, of course, it's a major problem, and you have to put your finger on the problem. Today, the churches have become what they are, and they're suffering. Very few ministers are happy in their work, and I've talked to a number of godly pastors, whose names you would recognize, and there's no joy in their work. They're suffering. The church is not what it should be. It should be a place for joyful growth together. Of, of course, this is one reason why uh, we are concerned with town We want to establish the principles of Christian
1: reconstruction in every area, church, state, school, everywhere.